There's something magical about a holiday movie, isn't there? Even the grinchiest of people can find something to like when the Christmas spirit hits the silver screen. The music, the decorations, the treats. Oh, if I'm having a hot chocolate while I'm watching a Christmas movie, chef's kiss. They're all part of the experience, and it's an absolute delight when it all comes together. You might also have a friend who regularly hosts a holiday party, bringing friends and family together for a last soiree before the new year. For a Los Angeles neighborhood, Christine Weatherup is that friend, and her annual party was part of the inspiration for See You Next Christmas, a film she wrote, directed, and acted in. We're talking about the process of making See You Next Christmas, what it's like to shoot a movie in your own home, and one of Christine's worst moments on a movie set. I'm Joey Held, this is Good People, Cool Things, and here's my conversation with Christine Weatherup. Can you give us your name and your elevator pitch and also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Ooh, the type of elevator. Okay. Uh, I'm Christine Weatherup. I am an actor, director, and writer. I wrote, directed, and acted in a Christmas movie called See You Next Christmas, which is sort of when Harry Met Sally meets Four Weddings and a Funeral. Basically, you follow uh, this couple who throws an annual holiday party and their ragtag group of friends over the course of six years. So you see everybody as they're growing and changing. And of course, there's a couple there, although not quite a couple yet, who keep meeting. And it's a will they or won't they get together over the course of six years. Um, And then in terms of my elevator, the first thing that came to mind was Willy Wonka's elevator. Like that's like the dream elevator that I want to go in one one day. (laughs) Maybe designed with some Christmas uh, treats. Yeah, there's like peppermint, you know. I don't even like peppermint, but it's so Christmassy that I, there should be peppermint. (laughs) Yeah, they're visually very pleasing. Yeah, yeah. Eating them, not as much. Yeah, gingerbread. I could be eating gingerbread, ginger spice, that sort of thing, but with, you know, peppermint decorations. And dark chocolate, maybe. Mm. (laughs) We're definitely going to get into the movie, but I was just curious because one of my favorite Christmas movies growing up was A Christmas Story, where Mm. one of the big plot lines is Ralphie wanting to get a Red Ryder BB gun air rifle. Of course. Which is, a, I feel like, a common theme in movies. It's like the, you know, you need this present. Like, you got to have it. Did you have a gift like that growing up that you were like, I need this, mom and dad? You know... I can't think of one that I, I, it made me think of the Christmas. I think everybody has that one Christmas that's crystallized in their mind as a child of like, that was the Christmas. And for me, I think I was about five and Santa brought me two things, a Barbie Corvette. And the reveal was, it was like, I, I think I had a box that had keys in it. And my mom said, go to the front door. And in our driveway, there was a Corvette. And I had gotten a fake fur coat as well, a white fur coat. And I got in and I was like, oh, my gosh. And that is like, that's the Christmas I think of where I had a uh, white fur coat in my Barbie Corvette. (laughs) So I don't think I I don't remember asking for it. It was like Santa came up with something even beyond my my dreams in, in that case. Some, yeah, sometimes Santa's a little wiser than we are. As yeah, kids. it's true. <laughs> Just I don't think I ever got a uh, any, really any kind of car. I'm sure I got like Hot Wheels. Sure, but not like one of those like, yeah, the electric cars that kids drive. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays, I mean, some of these Hot Wheels are 
collector's items. Little did yeah. we know. I know. We should have held on to everything, hoarded everything. And then, <laughs> and then one of them would maybe be worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Beanie Babies where you're like, this is an investment, mom and dad. <laughs> we do have a tub full of Beanie Babies. So yep, yep. Very <laughs> Our producer on. on the movie B was obsessed with Beanie Babies and I think has like special uh, uh, tag savers, like plastic things you put over the tags and like a, a storage area at her parents' house. For, like she she was very um, pro Beanie Baby and maybe they'll still hold up their, their worth. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Time will tell. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, let's talk about your movie. See you next Christmas. Now, somewhere on either on the website itself or something else, I was reading that this is a story that's based on real life that you've you've it's been years in the making so what did the process of putting this movie together look like yeah so it's based uh i don't want to say based because it's not none of the characters are actual characters per se but um i myself throw an annual holiday party Christmas, as as it's been named and so you know over the course of the last uh well if we if we rewind time about a decade ago, I was like, you know, I've wanted to direct and I haven't really um, I've been sort of waiting for an opportunity to fall in my lap. Right. And because I had been acting since I was a teenager, I went to film school and I was like, yeah, yeah. And then then the rest will kind of follow like this opportunity is going to come, you know, maybe when I'm acting on a project, I'll get an, an offer to direct. But unless you're, you know, the star of a hit TV series, you're not really getting those offers. And so at a certain point, I got frustrated and I thought, you know, this is time to self-generate. Why wait? And so I had made a short film that had done pretty well on the festival circuit. And then I wrote a feature and I was ready to make this other feature. Uh, but it was a, a, a bigger budget, especially for a first feature. And I had, you know, spent a year, year and a half trying to fundraise for it. And and with sort of bigger uh, private equity, um, or with a big production company. And I, I had some interest, but it just all of that, there were so many gatekeepers along the way, that after a year and a half passed, I thought, I'm never going to make this movie at this rate. What's something that I can make? And like, what are the resources I have? And so I have been thinking about this party that I throw. I mean, I had the space, right? It, I, the movie, spoiler alert, it, half of it is shot in my own apartment. <laughs> um, and so I, I started writing the movie. Uh, and I knew that I, I liked the idea of time and how we change over time and checking in with characters just the same day every year, just once a year. And so I wrote the script. And then from then on, you know, once I had a script, I started workshopping it and making sure that the script was in good shape and that there was something there, a story that I wanted to tell and that other people were interested in. And over the course of a year, as I developed it, uh, then it was the question of how I was going to raise the funds to make this movie. And once again, I didn't want to wait. And so the the movie by design was meant to be very economical, right? You know, I two locations, essentially, one, which I had, <laughs> so that I knew I had the time and to, to, you know, dress the location, get it ready. And just, I mean, I could pre light it, you know, my DP could come over and we could figure out our shots and all of that before we were shooting uh, for half the movie. And uh, we found this website, WeFunder, that is equity crowdfunding. And uh, we talked to the folks over there about what it would look like to build a campaign. And then 
within a few months, we got that campaign designed and approved and we went live. It would have been December of 2019. And then in January and February of 2020, while the campaign was going, we were shooting the movie. Uh, and then, of course, the world shut down right after that unexpectedly. And so the next, you know, six months, nine months, we were editing, doing post-production, all of that before getting uh, reaching out to distributors and film festivals and finding a way to get this movie out to the world. I think this was just a Reddit thread recently of like, when did you know that COVID was real? And like a bunch of people were saying when Tom Hanks got it. Yes. <laughs> Tom Hanks was really the moment. Yeah. Those were the two for me. I was like, Tom Hanks got it. NBA shuts down like back to back days. I'm just like, oh, no, like this is this is wild. But then some people were saying like, oh, no, I was traveling in like November and was hearing rumblings about it. And then in like January, my friend who lives in Asia is like, Mm. oh, we're being shut down and like all these things. So had you had you uh, heard about some of this? Like, did you kind of were you trying to like, let's get everything done before something happens? Or was it just very serendipitous? It was very serendipitous. We had a hard deadline. I mean, hypothetically, we had wanted to launch our WeFunder campaign in October, like I think around Halloween, so October, November. And it wasn't until mid-December that it went live just because it takes a long time to file and all of that and get it approved. Um, And so we had hoped to launch earlier so we would know more how much how we would eventually raise so we could also know how much we could play with on set, blah, blah, blah. But one of our producers, Beatrice Jaheen, she worked in network television and knew that she was going to be working on a pilot uh, at the end of February. And so she was like, we have to shoot it by then. And so we had these hard dates because of our producer, which at the time I remember being like, oh, if only we could move it. And now what a gift, you know, (laughs) but it is funny thinking about the COVID of it all. You know, a few people had colds on set. Of course, we don't know what cold they had, uh, but you can't help but think like that was a pretty bad cold they had. Could they have had COVID when they were on set or like, you know, our the first day of shooting, two crew members were out because they had really bad colds. And now in retrospect, it's like, I hope, you know, obviously Luckily, they were well the next day and came back and nobody else got sick. So maybe maybe it wasn't COVID. But I do remember the day before the last day of the shoot, we had one day off and uh, we kind of planned it that way because one of my best friends, it was her wedding. And so I was like, okay, we got to get that day off. So that then so like my one day off, I spent at a wedding, which was not a bad way to spend a day off. But we have a uh, another really close friend who was at that wedding who works uh, in biology and in pharmaceuticals and deals with that. And she had flown in from Oregon and she was talking a little bit about COVID and I, and, but just about how supply chain was kind of affecting her work that like shipping, you know, medicines and things was affecting because of COVID. But she, you know, nobody was wearing masks. No, she came down to the wedding and didn't, you know, have any fears about anything. And then, of course, like two weeks, I think, after we wrapped two or maybe it was three was when the lockdown officially happened. But so we I guess we, I had heard the term COVID, but I didn't think it was going to affect us, let alone I couldn't have imagined a lockdown. Right. Yeah, it, it is wild to think of like and e- even back then we were like, oh, yeah, it would be like two weeks. And then yeah, the flatten the curve. I often think about that, like two weeks to flatten the curve and then we'll be back. So like the first two weeks were like I was making, you know, biscuits and like doing uh, <laughs> puzzles and, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> now, going back to the shooting in your apartment. Yes. I, I, I know sometimes, you know, people have 
who have like a nice house or something might get used. Um, I think I was reading something recently about uh, there's a scene in Parks and Rec uh, where Amy Poehler and Ben Wyatt. Why am I forgetting their names? Mm-hmm. Leslie and uh, yes, and Adam uh, no, Scott. Yeah, or, yeah, or Adam Scott and um, La, and you know, uh, you know, why am I know. forgetting now? Now Amy Poehler uh, and Adam Scott. Amy Poehler, as thank you. Leslie, nope, and Ben yes. Wyatt. There we go. <laughs> they, <laughs> their house when they. Well, not to spoil a show that's been off the air for close to a decade, but at some if you point, haven't watched it, that's you've it's you you're bound to be spoiled. It's yes, okay, you're not yes. spoiling it. <laughs> and particularly, I, I'd say fans of this show might have also known that I did a show, Parks and Rec, where we go through the show because my other friend works in Parks and Rec, never saw the show. Oh, so how we fun! Were like, I didn't know that. That's very cool. Yeah, we got to introduce him to the show. It's great times. But spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leslie and Ben end up together and have children. And I believe I was reading how this was just like a random house that they found. And so they were going into, um, you know, this, these people's houses and like arranging it for the show. And they were talking about how they'd brought in like different magnets to put up on the refrigerator and all of that. So what yeah. kind of treatment did you have to do for your apartment? Or was it all you're like, this is this is great how it is? You know, I mean... We fortunately we have my best friend lives not too far away and she has a giant garage. And so we probably took out a lot of stuff from our apartment because we I think our apartment will call cozy, <laughs> which was a uh, code word for cluttered. Um, but and it was a one bedroom apartment and that we were going to then have, you know, a 40 person between the crew and the cast probably 40, maybe 50 on a big day, maybe even more with extras. But, uh, you know, a lot of people in a small space. And so we knew we had to get rid of a lot of stuff. And so very generously, my best friend let me, you know, over a few weekends, bring a bunch of stuff to her place. Then we, we changed the arrangement a little bit. I feel like we flipped the couch because we were thinking of like, what backgrounds do we want to shoot against and blah, blah, blah. And we needed room to load gear. Um, The other sort of fun fact about shooting in one's apartment when it's a one bedroom uh, is you know, there's a bedroom, a bathroom, a kitchen, and then the main room. And we had scenes in literally every space. Um, and so like, no, no area is safe. And so our bedroom went in the morning when we knew that people would be coming to to film, we would, we had gotten rid of the bed frame, and we were just sleeping on a mattress for the, you know, three weeks that we were shooting in our apartment. And so when people would come, we'd have to put the mattress on its side and like collapse everything just for people to be there. And then everyone would leave at the end of the night and we'd put the mattress back down so we could sleep. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it was very fun. And luckily, my husband produced the film. So he was game. It wasn't he, he would have. I, I can imagine a scenario where it would not be so like romantic and fun for somebody else. <laughs> He's just angrily eating like peanuts in the corner. Yeah, like I can't <laughs> believe I said yes to this. <laughs> You've done acting and writing, but the trifecta of directing, writing, and acting, did you find it easier? In a weird way, yes. In a weird way, I think it is easier. And maybe this speaks to a little element of being a control freak. I don't know. I, I like to not think that I am more organized, but it... I knew every element and by writing it, you know, the script really well. And so that gives you a gift both as an actor and a director to have written it and be that familiar with the script. That's already a given, but then I don't know. I think you, you just, you have to dig deep in each of those positions anyway, but because you've done the work on one, it gives you just this knowledge that you wouldn't ordinarily have if you were doing that position 
anyway, if that makes sense. And so I also think it was a unique thing that the character that I play in the movie, she's the person who hosts this Christmas party. And a director in a weird way is kind of the host of the shoot, you know, like they're the person who knows everyone who's coming to the the shoot that day. They know what they're supposed to do. They're like, you know, like at a party, maybe the host is like, oh, you've got to meet this friend of mine and do, 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 do. And same thing with the director. Oh, you better get into hair and makeup. And they're telling you kind of what to do. And so there was a synchronicity between the two positions, my character and the director. And so like, you know, I, I think a fear maybe I had, directing and acting that coming from acting myself that I didn't want the other actors to feel you know when you're in the scene with the director like oh they're judging me or they're giving me notes like because you know as an actor you're you're a peer you're kind of in it together and I was afraid that there'd be this weird hierarchy or they'd feel judged in the scene but I think the opposite happened that they felt you know, a certain kind of safety they, because I was one of them that they felt more open and more they allowed themselves to be maybe more vulnerable because they trusted me so deeply in both arenas in a funny way. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I like that. Yeah. And and good that I guess they uh, didn't fully feel like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, nobody did. And I think maybe because I was so worried they would, maybe I went to lengths that they went. I don't know. But I think at least the feedback I've gotten is that like the opposite was the case. So I'm I'm very grateful that that was that way. And you and the team have been collectively making movies, shows, creations in general for about a decade and a half. Yeah, has, yeah. Has I mean, obviously, technology has changed over that time. Has your sort of content creation process changed over that time? And I imagine yes, but how? That's a wonderful question. I feel like the approach maybe hasn't changed that much, but I think, you know... I think, well, obviously our skills have developed in that time, which can be both like, like we know how to get what we want in an easier way, like things come easier, but also, you know, I think because we've worked together on these indie projects over the course of the last, you know, 10, 15 years, but then between projects we're working, you know, like I said, our producer worked on the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And so we've, we've, uh, maybe I didn't mention what show, but that was one of the shows she worked on. And, you know, a lot of us have worked on some big, you know, big Hollywood studio projects and you, you know, what can be done with a lot of money. And then you go to the indie space and you're trying to squeeze every penny and see what you can do. And so sometimes it can be a challenge when, you know, we were so naive in the beginning and thought anything was possible. Whereas like the longer you work in it, you know why certain things take more time and more resources. And so it's a balancing act of opening up to that sort of naive possibility you once had, um, because there's a lot that you can learn from that. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing to think anything is possible, but also using your experience that you've had over the last 15 years to know, okay, here's some things we might run into. Here's some problems. Let's see how we can do it, you know, the right way um, and balance that, you know, so it's that you're you're kind of following the rules, so to speak. Whereas like when you come in as, you know, fresh out of college, you're like, we don't need permits. We don't need whatever. And like, we can do it for nothing. And that's not the case. Or I mean, you could, but a lot could go wrong that way. <laughs> What's something that has cost more than you expected? Oh, that's is a it great just everything? <laughs> I mean, oftentimes it is everything. But, you know, sometimes you get lucky in that. Well, here's one piece of pure luck that we had. So 
weeks before we were supposed to shoot, one of the things in uh, we were shooting in Los Angeles, where I live, and you have to get a, a per. Well, you don't. Some filmmakers don't get permits, but you should get a permit. And when you get a permit, then you have to go door to door to the neighbors, and you know whether you're in an apartment building or like I think there's a radius, and I can't remember a few blocks of you have to go to door to door to tell people we'll be shooting from these days, making a movie. If you have any complaints, you can talk to us. Blah 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 blah. So everybody knows they're not surprised. Like, what's a film crew doing on the lawn or whatever? And um, in the process of doing that, we talked to our upstairs neighbors in our building and found out that they were like, oh, this is it was surprisingly most people were like, how cool you're shooting a movie. We thought they might be the opposite. <laughs> but our neighbors were like, how cool. Unfortunately, I'm moving that weekend where you're starting, but but good luck. And we were like, wait, you're moving. And so we were able to talk to our landlord and use their empty apartment as a staging area, which we hadn't planned on. And so when we had, you know, 50 people there, they weren't all in our in our unit. We were able to let people, and we had made a deal with our very kind landlord who let us do this so that we could use it as a sort of green room, you know, changing space. Because otherwise, it would, I mean, making a film is challenging, but it would have been very challenging to be in that very small space with one bathroom. Now we upgraded and had two bathrooms. <laughs> Yeah, but I think there are expense. I mean, camera can be very expensive and you don't. But I think, you know, once again, you're always hunting for that deal. I think that's sort of that like indie entrepreneurial. You're, you know, like, well, what can I do? You have a friend who needs this. And and we're very lucky because my husband, who was the other producer, Matt Enlow, he has a podcast called Just Shoot It. That's about directing. And through that, he found one of the places we were going to rent a camera basically he found somebody who was a fan of the podcast who had the camera we wanted and he gave us a nice deal because he loved the podcast and so like i don't know sometimes fortuitous things happen along the way so some of those crazy costs location i guess is probably the biggest cost that you don't expect so our other location was a house that we rented for just about a week um, for the second, uh, the second half of the movie, the last three parties, um, and so that was a little expensive. But you kind of, if you've done it enough times, you know, okay, the location's going to be a little pricey. Uh, so you you know what what your what pills you're going to swallow, I guess, in advance. <laughs> I do like that you called out uh, giving neighbors a heads up because I learned this in high school. Uh, we were making this was right. This is like the mid 2000s. So right at the height of all those zombie movies that were coming oh, out. Sure. Like Dawn of the Dead in particular. And one of our, I don't even think I was involved in this project. I think I was just helping out with it. But some for some class, they had to make a little film. And so we had a friend whose name was Dez. So we did Dawn of the Dez. And I <laughs> oh, play perfect. someone who's been bitten. And I'm just kind of like walking onto the side of the road. And then Dez comes up to me and then I attack him. And this was taking place on someone's lawn in our neighborhood. Like we were just, we we yeah. we were like, hey, we're just going to do this little chase. And then you follow us with the camera. And I'm, I'm like attacking this guy on this random lawn. And the woman who owns the house comes out and she's like, what's going on out here? And we're like, oh, we're just, you know, filming a little. Which shooting. is a great sign. You're doing it. Like it was so convincing that she felt like she had to come out. Yeah. And she was like, oh, she's like, okay. Um, she's like, are you going to be long? And we're like, no, no, no. We just have this one scene. She's like, all right. So we had to, we had to reshoot it one more time, but it was, uh, it worked out well. And it was, 
I don't know, probably four hours of zombie makeup for about seven minutes of shooting. So I, yeah, I learned that multiple is kind lessons. Of the right that ratio, day. though. I think that you know, working on big projects, makeup that can be half the day for some of them. You know, it was wild. Probably the best I've looked on uh, on films. <laughs> It's only downhill from there. So far, so far, there's still time. I feel like you've kind of given us a, a little glimpse of this, but I'm always curious. What's something that surprises people about making a movie? How much work you put into it. I think because, you know, when you're, you know, I, I don't know that people are reading Entertainment Weekly the same way they, they used to, but like that for me growing up, that was my source of like, oh, this is how the movies are made. And one day I hope to do this. And when you look at it, you know, even or if you watch an interview with an actor, it just sounds like, oh, we were joking in our trailer. And it just sounds like it's fun and games and that it's like just hanging out and then they do a scene and then the movie's done. And just the amount of prep that every member of the team has to do the the amount of decisions i mean i think of and this is not obviously on our movie but as an actor i was on uh, an episode of mad men and in that episode you know the in the makeup trailer they put on two different lipsticks took a picture sent it to the director who is matt weiner who's the creator of the show and he picked what lipstick color i wore like that sort of level of decision you don't even think like that somebody's that the director is approving a lipstick color or like the books on the shelf have been approved and that you know the music playing in the background that you can't really hear wasn't just kind of randomly put in there but it's it's you know many people decided that when somebody picks up the coffee cup and puts it down and there's a sound on the table, there's somebody maybe doing Foley of a coffee cup, you know, like all those little elements that create the mood and, and, you know, should feel, you shouldn't, the audience shouldn't notice that it, but somebody, somebody's thinking about that, like every single decision. And there's so many hours and so many, you know, just, it's a lot. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to make it look easy. I think often case. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing Matthew Weiner like uh, very like that's his most agonizing decision. Like he's like the, the yeah, main scene here of, of what's going on with the with the firm. Totally fine. But this lipstick. But yeah, what do we do? Which lipstick is it? You know, ruby red or <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, amazing. And I guess sort of a tangential experience, because I always like asking musicians this about their worst gig. Do you have any horror stories from a time on set? Oh, from a time on set. I mean, I feel like there are so many horror <laughs> stories from auditioning from like, um, from a time on set. What's a horror story? It could be well, from an is, audition okay, from, too, whatever. Well, yeah, I'm trying to think what are fun horror stories because there are horror stories that are just dark. <laughs> <laughs> but you're sort of a fun one. So about 10 years ago, um, maybe 10 to 12 years ago, uh, so Matt B and I, the, who were the three of us who kind of were at the helm of this film, we were working on a web series that Matt had written and directed. I produced uh, and acted in, and then B all was a line producer on it. And we were getting ready for our big finale, the shoot that we were was going to be the finale episode. And in that episode, we had tons of extras, and we had sourced a location. So it always goes to location uh, that was a friend's cousin's apartment we had done a tour of it we knew exactly how we were going to shoot and it was the day we were shooting biggest day we drive to the location where we Matt and I are there a half an hour before everybody else is supposed to get there as we're pulling up and he actually he's in one car I'm in another and we're talking on on the phone and we're talking and it's a really nice conversation all of a sudden I hear yelling in the distance and he goes I gotta go bye 
And I'm driving and like, what's happening? And as I pull up, I see him having an argument with somebody in the in the driveway. We find out that even though the tenant had told us that the site was approved, he had not told his landlord that we were going to be filming there. They said, absolutely not. You can't film there. And we have a crew of, in that case, it was probably 50, let's say the crew was 20, and then we had 30 people, 30 or 40 extras and actors coming in the next half hour uh, for our biggest day. And (laughs) we had to think fast and go, well, what do we do? And in that case, we were like, well, the only other location we know we have access to right now is our own apartment, which... I don't know why I ever agreed to doing that. And so we had to call everybody and say, okay, change of plans, come to our apartment. And then we had to also reconfigure the whole thing of, okay, it's supposed to look like this. And I mean, luckily it was supposed to look like a party and we could make our you know apartment look like a party. And we hadn't really cleaned it because we were in the middle of shooting all of this and didn't think like anybody would be coming in. And so it was like a disaster, but somehow it worked out, but it was a little terrifying to have to change your whole day And it was a big day that we were, you know, the boss who like the person who is uh, the company that was giving us the money to make this web series. They were going to visit set that day. And so like it was very stressful. And then our landlord showed up halfway through the day and was like, what's going on? Like he happened to be in the neighborhood and saw it. And and I was like and I explained the whole story and he goes, you know, for you, it's okay," (laughs) which was so sweet. I'm, I'm very lucky he liked me. It's the power of being a good tenant. You get. You I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. I was one of his favorites, which you wouldn't think if I'm like filming things in the building that I would be a favorite. But somehow I was nice most of the year, and uh, I think that went a long way. I wonder what that <laughs> says about the other people who lived. Yeah, room. maybe. Yeah, I was. I was the favorite amongst just horrible people. <laughs> <laughs> no, my neighbors were lovely. I'll say that. Yes. Yes. Like so too. They never complained about us shooting movies there either, so I really can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. This is probably jumping way back to uh, maybe the first thing you said when you were going through the entire process of making "See You Next Christmas." But I think one of the interesting things nowadays is there's so many ways to watch a movie. So there's lots of different ways to distribute the film. So did you have kind of an idea, or was it like, "Hey, I'm going to see what's out there," and and pick the best options. Having come from the acting world and been in a few independent films and seeing their distribution path, you know, growing up, I think the dream was always, you know, being released on the big screen and seeing it in a movie theater. And I remember being disappointed as an actor that some of the films, a disappointment is too strong, but some of the films that I had been in never made it a theatrical release. But in talking to filmmakers and a few that I knew who had done a theatrical release, it's at this point very much a vanity thing. You know, for an independent film, unless you're like a truly independent film, to be in, to do a theatrical release, it costs so much money. And you don't have the marketing budget that a studio would that then brings people in to make back that money. You know, it's not a good financial decision if you're trying to you know, make money on the film and bring the money, you know, recoup for your investors and all of that. And so, Knowing that and learning that before making the movie was great because we set our expectations at streaming from the get-go. We didn't want to do a theatrical release because we want to make more movies and we wanted to recoup our money and and keep our investors happy, hopefully, and then make more, right? And so I knew we were going to go the streaming path. 
And originally, I didn't even think we were going to try for festivals because festivals tend to like, you know, I don't want to say an artsier fair because our film is sort of, it isn't a Hallmark Christmas movie. It is more of a an indie Christmas film, a millennial, you know, it has a different sensibility. Um, but I didn't know if festivals would be excited by it. And it was sort of because of the timeline that we knew our, our distribution, we had talked to distributors early in 2021, found somebody who was excited about the project and wanted to release it at the end of the year. And we kind of had, you know, six months and we we're like, well, we might as well try to do a few festivals while we're waiting for the film to officially release. And we ended up finding a home at a number of great festivals and winning a few awards and then getting to see it on the big screen with an audience. So we got that part of the experience. Um, but the the sort of interesting thing I didn't anticipate because the other films I'd been in hadn't been holiday films. Most indie films have a sort of 90 day release where you you do well, maybe that I shouldn't give a day count because it can be different, but you have three different windows. You have what's called the TVOD window, which is transactional. So that's when it goes on to iTunes or Amazon, but not Amazon Prime, where an, uh, basically you're buying a ticket for that film. You're saying, I want to see, see you next Christmas. Here's $9.99 or whatever the price is. And you're just paying transactional just for that one film. Um, so sort of a la carte. Then the next window, so you you stay in that window for a little while before you go into SVOD, which is subscriptional. So that's when it is an Amazon Prime or a Hulu, a Peacock, Netflix, Paramount Plus, something where you're buying the subscription to the service and getting their whole library. But you're not picking, I'm buying, you're not picking the individual film, but you're getting the library. And then after that is the AVOD, which is ad video on demand. So that's like uh, YouTube where they have ads in it or any of those other platforms. And so most films come out, let's say 90 days, 120 days where they do those back to back. But because of the nature of ours being a holiday film, it didn't make sense to do them back to back because either we'd be releasing on TVOD in August to get as far, you know, and then it's like, who's going to watch it? Nobody's going to be buying it in August. Uh, so instead we had our TVOD window in December of 2020, well, November of 2021, then SVOD, AVOD coming up in 2022. And then every year it's kind of, now it's out on everything year round. And actually people are watching it year round, which is exciting and kind of surprising sometimes. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it spread out over a period of time and our distributor, Giant Pictures, they were pitching it to the various platforms. So we would say, you know, here's who we're hoping to end up on. Are you having conversations with them? And they'd get back to us. Oh, we're still waiting on blah, 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 blah. Um, and so over the course of time, we've we've found a home on Peacock has been really exciting. And I think a lot of people have discovered it through that and Tubi and all sorts of places. As an analytics nerd, I'd say my uh, closest point of reference to this is something like Spotify, where they're... Um, mm. I, I always find Spotify, for, like for artists or for podcasters, like their metrics, it's very interesting how some of them, it's like you can go back to, I think 2015 is when they kind of started offering that. So you can see like historical data as far back as that. But then on others, yeah. like you can only do 28 days. And I'm like, why can't I hear mm. who was listening in like Indonesia four months ago? Why is it only 28? Like it's always so confusing me. So I'm this is more just out of curiosity and you don't have to like, drop any actual numbers or anything but what kind of sure. metrics do you get from these different platforms 
You know, I think it, it it varies. You know, it depends on the different platforms, how much information they give. I think one of the things that I do like is you do get the sort of global map. And so it was interesting in our TVOD window, so that very first window, that people were buying it on iTunes. I think it was iTunes that was more international in like Israel. I kind of surprised me, especially you wouldn't think necessarily a Christmas movie. <laughs> be like selling there. But, you know, like, uh, I mean, a bunch of different European countries and just like that I thought was really interesting. You don't get data as much, you know, and, and Giant, like I, I said, our distributor, they do have a, a web portal where we can go in and see the quarterly, like this is how much iTunes is bringing in or whatever, the different ones. They don't give data like how much of the movie people are watching when they stop or things like that. That w- I mean, I would love as much data as possible, but uh, different sites report different uh, differently. So like they might not give as much I think I think uh, iTunes actually gives a fair amount of data, which makes sense as more of a, a data company, I guess I would think that Apple would be. But um, whereas I'm trying to think who doesn't give so much. But, you know, d- depending on the one, different one, they might not tell you many details. Um, and sometimes it's a surprise when we get our quarterly statement. You know, we were on United Airlines last holiday season, which was a wonderful surprise. We didn't know. And I got an, a text from a friend of a screen grab like your movie's on the in, in the air. And we were like, wait, what? And because that deal hadn't come through and hadn't become official. And so we didn't find out until like a friend told me. <laughs> and then then in the next quarter, we found out it was in the data, but it hadn't been previously. But with United Airlines, we don't know how many people watch it. Um, so, which would be really interesting. I would like to know like how it did on the flight, but I don't know. Yeah. That would be super cool. I, surely they have that info, but. I feel like uh, they must, but I don't think they give it. That's the thing, the transparency, which it's interesting in light of, you know, the recent strikes in Hollywood, a lot of the conversation has been about transparency. And I think as an independent filmmaker, that can be one of the big frustrations when you're doing distribution and we went with a company that is very artist friendly. But even so, I think when the companies they deal with, the companies you're trying to get your movie on, they're not giving information. There's only so much transparency that can be had, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Christine, you're almost off the hook here. But we always... Ah, don't make me off the hook. I'm having fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we always like to wrap up with a top three. And I think just in the spirit of See You Next Christmas, what are your top three non-See You Next Christmas movies? I don't know if you were going to try to throw your... Okay, that's good. I won't include my own. That would be obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, from my childhood, I can't... Well, actually, these first two picks are both sort of childhood picks. I'm going to start with Muppet Christmas Carol because that... Every Christmas Eve I like to watch. It just makes me so happy. I mean, I love the Muppets. And Charles Dickens is pretty good, too. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's just so well done. I even started watching it early this year, and it really just made me happy. So we'll start with Muppet Christmas Carol. Classic. Then this isn't a movie, but I watch it every Christmas. The Pee Wee Christmas special. Because it is so zany and joyful and celebrity filled <laughs> but it just i it, i just smile from ear to ear when i watch that i don't know have you seen the Pee Wee christmas special it's been a while but I let need me to tell you do yourself a favor especially i mean in light of this year with paul rubens passing uh 
it holds up. It's even better. It's it's weird. And like that ever got made is crazy. And it's just, yeah, do yourself a favor and watch it. And then my number three pick is would not most people would not call it a Christmas movie, but Bridget Jones's diary. A lot of the pivotal scenes are around Christmas and it just is a cozy, wonderful. And I, I love romantic comedies as evidenced by See You Next Christmas. And so there's definitely DNA from that movie in our movie that I didn't even realize until I rewatched it. And it just it makes me happy. So those are my three. Amazing. Amazing. I, I haven't seen Bridget Jones' Diary in probably 10 years or so, too. So I got some rewatching to do. Yeah, you've got fun. some homework. I gave you homework today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll give our listeners homework as well if they want to. That's right. And they can do a top four. They can the... throw See You Next Christmas in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if they, you, you've kind of dropped it a couple times throughout of where they can see it. But if they want to learn more, where can they go? Uh, well, they can go to seeyounextchristmasmovie.com. They could go to it on Instagram. If you find my name, Christine Weatherup, on Instagram or just dot com or really if you google me you will find the movie um and then you can find the movie amazon itunes you know anywhere voodoo anywhere where movies are available almost anywhere but a lot of you google it you will find it and actually this week made it onto cosmo cosmopolitan magazine's top uh top 22 uh christmas movies available free on streaming which i was like hey i'm happy to be on the list teenage Chrissy would like Cosmo magazine wrote up my movie would be very exciting. That's sweet, sweet SEO backlinked. Yeah, too. that's right. Yeah. To be on one of those lists. I'm very excited. Well, we're glad <laughs> teen Chrissy has grown up into a yes. Cosmo superstar <laughs> among. I know. Right. I did. I, you know, it's funny because I was not very hip or, but Cosmo was one of those magazines. Like I guess as a teen girl, you're just being, you know, pushed that magazine. So to be in Cosmo, is somehow feeling weirdly memorable, meaningful to me. Yeah, Cosmo had <laughs> some memorable. good, uh, good stories. Yeah, I've heard of that magazine. I, it's one of those things. As an indie filmmaker, you're like, that's a name people. And we, you know, the year we came out, Entertainment Weekly had included us on a list. And because I grew up like loving Entertainment Weekly, that was another one that was like, we made it. We made it. It's it's real. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is fantastic. Just like this conversation was, Christine. This was so much fun. It was so much fun for me. Thank you. And of course, we have to end with a corny joke, as we always do. And of course, it's Christmas themed. What's Santa's favorite candy? Oh, I'm so bad with these. I have no idea. Please tell me, what is Santa's favorite candy? Jolly Ranchers. Ah, there you go. I should have gotten there. I never get there. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Ooh.